0: Well, good morning, church. We're, we're finally here. After 16 months, that was, let me re-enunciate that. That wasn't 60. That was 16. 16 months. We're at the end of the book of Acts. A detailed account of the mind-blowing expansion of the early church. An expansion that took 30 years. 30 years. I mean, I'm, I'm 53 now. Only 30 years. And it saw a small group of 120 frightened disciples grow into 3,000, then then, 5,000, then tens of thousands of disciples spread all the way from Jerusalem to the most remote part of the empire and into the center and heart in Rome itself. So let me turn to the question that I opened up our series with. Began with 16 months ago. What is your confidence in the power and the ultimate success of the gospel today? Well, what is your confidence in it? Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the least and 10 being the highest, where are you at today? I don't know where you were at 16 months ago, but where are you at today? Is it 5? Is it 7? Is it 9? I mean, the truth of the matter is that 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 circumstances in life are always changing and challenging our confidence. It's important to see. It's like there's times we feel much stronger. There's times we feel much weaker. Many times, depending on what's going on around us. Maybe you're a person that feels like the gospel is just really not working very well in your life. That'll challenge it. Your marriage is hard. Your, your kids aren't embracing the gospel, or maybe maybe they've abandoned it after once embracing it. And it's hard to have confidence in the gospel. Sometimes your interactions in the church itself can challenge your confidence. Right? I mean, maybe you served in church ministries and you're not really seeing much fruit. Maybe, you're, maybe, maybe, maybe you've encountered dissensions and power struggles and, and other problems within the membership. And that will that really, really threaten your, your confidence in the gospel when you see the people who are supposed to be transformed by the gospel. But maybe aren't living that transformed. Or maybe you look at our nation and the downward spiral that we're in. We we live in a time in the history of our our nation where they tell us that only 63% of Americans claim now to be a Christian, whereas in a few years back, it was 90%. So even here at the end of the book, if you're not answering a 10 this morning, if you're not a 10 after everything we've seen, I do get it. There's countless things in life that can threaten our confidence. There's things that we know and then, and then how do we apply those and see them out working in our lives? And it threatens the gospel. Yet what have we seen? And what have we seen as we turn to the book itself? from the ascension of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, the arrival of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, all the way to chapter 28 with Paul in well, not in prison, in house prison, chained to a Roman guard. What have we seen? I mean, we've seen the power of the gospel, haven't we? Beginning beginning in Jerusalem, moving out to the, these, these half-breed heretics, the Samaritans, moving out to full-blooded Gentiles like Cornelius, transforming Jesus hating persecutors like Saul captivating countless men women and children from every tribe tongue and nation as they come to faith in Jesus Christ we've seen power yet Luke has not shielded us from the honest realities has he We've not only witnessed disagreement and sin and hypocrisy within the church. It's clear and it's present and it's been recorded for us in Acts. And at the same time he's recorded the difficulty and danger and and tragedy and wrongful imprisonment and torture that Christians have endured for the sake of Christ. He's given us a front row seat to everything. See, in all of this, he hasn't been pushing this false promise that that everything is just gonna be easy in life if you believe in Jesus. Come to Jesus, and it's gonna be a free ride. That's not been the account of this book, no. He's been brutally honest. He's been brutally honest about the imperfections and sins of God's people, and he's been honest about the severe difficulties and even even the most committed devoted, holy living, Jesus-following Christians endure. Like all of those things that we hold in high regard that we're called to don't shield God's people from the hardest things. Yet in all of this, what have we seen? We've seen time and time again Luke's theme throughout the book. Nothing Nothing can hinder the progress of the gospel because the risen and ascended King Jesus is actively advancing his kingdom through his spirit-empowered witnesses. That's the theme of the book from beginning to end. Nothing can stop it. Not because we're smart and we're, we're, we're great at doing what we do, but because God is at work through us to accomplish his purposes. In fact, we even see this as Luke is bringing this account together and to an end in the final two verses that we're taking on today. Final two verses, verses 30 and 31. Speaking of the Apostle Paul, now in Rome, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What a way to end the book. With all boldness without hindrance yet chained chained to a Roman guard. See in in these final verses Luke is closing his book with a note of, of fulfillment and vindication. Two things going on, fulfillment and vindication. On the one hand, Paul's in Rome. He, he's at the center of the Gentile world, the heart of the kingdom. And he's freely proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as a faithful witness. And, he's, and, and in so doing... He's not only fulfilling Jesus' commission to the twelve, he's fulfilling his divine calling as an apostle and experiencing the unique promise that Jesus gave him. Three verses. Acts 1 8. At the very beginning, you will, be my, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we've seen this work out in the book. It's, it's like this, this radiating set of concentric circles moving out from Jerusalem out through the empire into Rome. We also know when God was calling Paul into the ministry and he's using the disciple Ananias to set Paul on his route. He says this to Ananias in Acts 9.15 about Paul and his ministry. He says, go, go for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And we've seen this happen. Every one of these audiences and he's waiting for an audience with Caesar. On top of that, we have the final promise of Acts 21, 11, the second half of the verse. When Paul is in Jerusalem, recovering from almost being beaten to death, Jesus says, take courage. For, you've te- for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome we see fulfillment. And on the other hand, we see that Paul has an open door to preach the gospel without a single hindrance. Without a hindrance. Anybody who wants to hear the gospel can come. Anybody. He's chained He has a captive audience, no matter who's coming to visit. He always knows he has a captive audience, whoever has been assigned to him for the day. They get to hear the gospel too. Whoever wants to come, he's preaching. He never stops preaching the gospel. He continues. Everybody who comes... Nothing, whether it's prison or persecution or the possibility of death, everything that Paul's faced, nothing can stop him and his passion to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we also know from the broader storyline of the book, it's not because Paul is the strongest and wisest apostle. It's not merely because Paul is, is incredibly different from you and me. No, it's because, as we've seen from the very beginning of the book, the risen and ascended King Jesus is advancing his kingdom through his spirit-empowered witnesses, which Paul is one of many in this book. But the very conclusion leaves us with some questions it leaves us with questions. Or maybe it should. Have you ever got to the end of the book of Acts and gone, why does Luke stop there? Right? He's waiting for his trial. He doesn't tell us how it turns out. We don't know about the later years of Paul's life. How does the story end? Why does he end the story with Paul in chains preaching the gospel? Well, scholars propose There's about kind of three key possibilities they pose. Some are better than others. A a small number of scholars would just say, you know, Luke's been writing full time. He's done all of his research and all of his recording. And when Luke finishes up his work, Paul's still in prison. So he just ends with Paul in prison. Well, Paul's in prison, put a period at the end of the sentence, and, and that's why it ended there. It's a view not a lot of scholars hold that view, but some do. And another group would say, well, you know, what happened is, is that Paul was declared guilty and summarily executed after this trial for his crimes against Rome. And so, so Luke just didn't want to end the account on a negative note. He wanted to leave Paul in this great, perfect light. Yet while it's accepted, and recorded that, that Paul was executed as a Christian under the Roman Empire there's at least two problems with the second view now, number one is that throughout the entire second half of the book of Acts who have been the people for Paul and who have been the people against Paul the people against Paul have been the Jews. The people who have been for Paul and saying he's innocent time and time and time again are who? It's the Romans, right? We have, we have, we have the tribune, sends a letter, he's innocent. We have Festus going, he's innocent. Agrippa's realizing he's innocent. Like the Romans haven't been against him. And, and, on this, and, on the, on, and for a second note, the, the other thing that makes this a difficult possibility to actually say that that's actually what happened here is we have the record in the pastoral epistles first and second timothy and titus they record paul in a very different situation in those letters paul is in a dungeon paul knows his final days are coming he knows the end is near and that's not where we see paul here I mean, I mean, just listen to the tone in Second Timothy chapter four when Paul tells Timothy, "For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, my death, has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award me on the day, on that day, and not only to me, but those who have loved His appearing." So the second view has a problem even though we know that Paul was executed. Which brings us to the third. And the most likely possibility is that, and it flows actually from early historical records from the early church fathers. Is, is that Paul was declared innocent at this trial. Sometime after the end of this two years, around two years, he's, he's declared innocent either because the Jews failed to press their case or because Paul was just acquitted. But he's declared innocent. In fact, both Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius tell us that Paul was released probably sometime around 62 AD and that he enjoyed a final period of gospel ministry for a couple years. One of those men tells us that Paul actually did get a chance to go all the way to Spain. It's the only record we have of it. But they tell us that he made it actually to Spain as he wanted to go as he records in the book of Romans. Yet somewhere in the late 60s, which we do have records of, is he was imprisoned again under Nero and executed by beheading. So the most likely explanation of the Paul's late years is released after Romans 28, after he's declared innocent, a final period of ministry, then an execution before 70, A.D. But that brings us back to our question. If this, is an old, if, this is, if this is an accurate record of Paul's final years of gospel ministry, if this is truly how his, his final martyrdom occurred, why doesn't Luke tell us the rest of the story? It's not ugly. It's not like Paul failed. It's not like Paul, Paul walked away from the faith. Why doesn't he tell us? I mean, I mean, after all, he's told us about the ministry and the martyrdom of Stephen. He's told us about the ministry and the martyrdom of James. But he, he, he could have easily told us about that with Paul. Well, I think we can identify at least two reasons. And it fits with the purpose and theme of his book. Number one, given that here at the end of the book that Paul is still preaching the gospel to anyone who will visit Luke wants it to be very clear. He wants it to be clear that the gospel is still available to Jews and Gentiles alike. Yes, Paul's made it to the center of the Gentile world. Yes, there have been at least two clear proclamations where he's saying, you know what? I'm turning away from you guys. I'm going to the Gentiles. God is sending it to the Gentiles, but he's making it clear whoever wants to listen, Paul's preaching the gospel to there's still hope for the Jews. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone, not just some, not just most, for everyone who believes to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Both. Both and. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, while this might not seem like that in much of an important issue for us today, in the early centuries, and the, I should say the, maybe the latter centuries, as we're getting out and into the later generations of the church, there is that question. If Jesus is God's promised Messiah through the people of Israel, why do so few Jews believe? Why have so few pursued? And in this work, we see that the Jews, not all the Jews have rejected, many Jews have come to faith. Many people of promise have received the promise and it's still available. Number two, and maybe actually more importantly even, is, is it Luke doesn't tell us the rest of the story because the book of Acts was never a story about Paul. The book of Acts isn't a story about Paul. I mean, I mean to put it another way, the hero of the story It's not Paul, it's not Peter, it's not Barnabas, it's not Philip, it's not any of the other witnesses. The the hero of this story is the triune God himself. The hero hero of the story is God. I I mean, just think about it. In this account of Acts, what have we heard? What have we seen time and time again? We've been told about the Father who has fulfilled his eternal plan. To redeem a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. So God the Father has had a plan to redeem a people for himself. What about the Son? The Son fulfills that plan in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension. And then the Holy Spirit supernaturally directs and empowers this plan through the faithful witness of individual Christians. God is at the center of this story. In fact, let me show you how we see this even clearer. Let's go all the way back to Acts chapter 5 and a statement that was made by Paul's mentor and teacher, Gamaliel. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Paul's not on the scene yet, disciples have been imprisoned. They've been freed. They're found preaching the gospel out in the temple again. They're hauled in. They're questioned. They're threatened. They reply, we must obey God rather than men. And that's where we pick it up in verse 33. And speaking of the Sanhedrin, when they heard this, when they heard the disciples say, we must obey God rather than men, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Right on the spot, let's just wipe this thing out. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men, that is the disciples, outside for a while. Sends the disciples out of the room and he turns to the Sanhedrin and he says this, men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Thaddeus arose claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and nothing came. After him Judas the Galilean rose up in in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Now here's his point, verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Notice, what does he say? If this is just something designed by men, it's not gonna last. It's gonna fail. But if it's of God you are not going to be able to overthrow them. No matter what you do, you're not going to be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. This is one of the most theologically important statements in the entire book. Because it encourages the reader from the earliest chapters of the book to constantly ask the question, is the church growing? Is it not growing? Is it slowly falling apart now that Jesus went into heaven? The leader's gone. Is the church falling apart? How about when other leaders of the church start to die? Stephen, James, James, other leaders are martyred for their faith. Does the church fall apart? We're supposed to be asking ourselves, what's going on in the church? So let me show you how this test proves God's work in the gospel through the rest of the book. Let's just, let's just do a quick survey. And we're gonna do this survey following Luke's summary statements. He loves to make these summary statements through the books, through the book, and they often point back to exactly what Gamaliel is talking about. So let's let's go back early on. Acts chapter six, shortly after Gamaliel makes this statement, we have a significant problem in the church. It is ready to blow up because of an issue between the Hellenistic and the Jewish Greek widows. The Hellenist widows aren't receiving the portion or don't believe they're receiving the portion that they ought to receive. The church thinks it's an issue of discrimination and they're ready to blow up. Yet God leads the apostles and the congregation to a unified solution in the appointment of seven men who really kind of pattern the deacons that come after them. And what's the result we see in Acts chapter six? Verse seven, after this this crisis is averted, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Threats from within, overcome by the power and the grace of God and the church grows. Well, how about threats from the outside? Shortly after this, chapter seven, Stephen is stoned to death persecution comes to the Jerusalem church at the hands of Saul in the opening verses of chapter 8. Countless Christians are fleeing for their lives everywhere. They're being spread out from Jerusalem and at this point we might begin to think that this wasn't God's plan after all. Why would God allow this such a thing to happen? Yet as we read through the chapters 8 and 9 we quickly run into the most amazing developments persecution presses the gospel into Samaria through the ministry of Philip the greatest persecutor of the church Saul comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ we get to acts 9:31 After these events, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What happened? The church doesn't fall apart. It's growing and it's expanding, And even not in an intentional planned way to make it from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. No, they made it to Samaria because of persecution. After this, King Herod decides he's going to get in the mix. He kills James. He's doing everything he can to murder Peter. God protects Peter. And he protects his church by ending Herod's life. What happens after Herod dies? Acts 12, 24, the word of God. Notice again, the word of God increases and multiplied after the death of King Herod. We see this constant growth being marked out stage by stage by stage of the book. It's a note being played constantly through the book to say, look, look at what God is doing The church is not failing. Shortly after this, God calls Paul himself into missionary service to preach the gospel and to plant churches all over Asia Minor. The results of Paul's ministry, Acts 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. We fast forward to Acts 19, another missionary journey. Here now in Ephesus, Starting in verse 9, but when the, some of the Jews in a synagogue became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the house of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. Notice what's the result? So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. church is growing this is what we've been seeing through various works of various people and their ministries the church is growing god is growing his church and we get to the end of the book of acts what do we see we see paul is in rome he's in chains but the key thing is that he can preach the gospel to anybody the gospel is going out without hindrance If it's from God, what did Gamaliel say? You're not going to be able to stop it. What does without a hindrance mean? Nothing is stopping it. See, what I want you to see in all of this is the story of Acts. It's not just a story about who we are as Christians. It's not just a story about the historical origins of the church or the content of the gospel, though the book of Acts contains all of those things. Now the book of Acts tells us time and time again that our God is a missionary God. Our God is a missionary God. So let me close with two notes of application thinking about this. Number 1. It reminds us that our mission as a church is not ultimately about us. Our our mission isn't about us. Our our consistent proclamation of the gospel. It, it it's more it's more than a message of individual salvation for people on this planet. It certainly involves it but, it, but it's more than that. Well, what are we declaring in the gospel of Jesus Christ? In that declaration of the gospel is a declaration of God's eternal plan to bring salvation to a race of wretched rebels through Israel, his ever rebellious people. I mean, even if you think about the gospel, it blows your mind. Who does God use to bring salvation to mankind? A rebellious people. He uses a rebellious people. Opening chapters of Acts, I mean, of Isaiah. God talks to Israel, says like a donkey knows its master, but my people doesn't even know me. It's how rebellious, but God uses them to get his gospel, to bring us Jesus Christ, and it brings glory to God. See, the gospel isn't first and foremost about our lives, our needs, or our priorities. It's about God's kingdom. It's about God's grace and Jesus' accomplished work. In fact, as we've seen and we've followed the storyline of Luke, the speeches of Peter and Stephen and Paul why do we get all these speeches recorded? It's so that we can understand what God himself is doing. We've seen the good news of the gospel is that God has fulfilled his promises to Old Testament Israel. Israel. How has he done it? By establishing his kingdom on earth through the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is what? Israel's long-promised Messiah. And on account of his coming, what does he do? What does he offer? He now brings forgiveness, and he pours out his Spirit on all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, who believe. And in the process, what is he doing? He's saving them from eternal judgment and empowering them to fulfill their God-given mission on this planet. That's what we see when we read through all of the speeches. And this is important for us to see because it reminds us as Christians that any rejection, any opposition, any persecution that we face It's never ultimately about us. And that's ultimately about us. Now now we receive it. It's directed at us, but it's never ultimately about us. As Jesus says in John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated, hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Important things for us to remember. Remember the world. The word that I said to you, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word... They will keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And there's times that we need that remembrance because so often it feels like maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just about who I am. When it comes down to it, it's ultimately about Christ. So our mission isn't ultimately about us. Which brings us to the second and final application as we close out this book. Is our mission is ultimately about the glory and the worth of God himself. Our, Our mission is about the glory and worth of God himself. And in case you're wondering how, let me just highlight two things on the one hand the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals the character and worth of God like nothing else does. The gospel reveals it. The gospel reveals the glory of God's infinite life-giving righteousness. It, it it helps us see his unfathomable self-giving love and his mind-blowing mercy to us. See, apart from the gospel, we cannot see God as he truly is. See, the gospel is like a telescope. I know I've used this illustration before, but this is a perfect time to talk about it. What's the difference between a microscope and a telescope? They both magnify, right? But a microscope magnifies infinitesimally small things so that we can even see what they are. But at the end of the day, they are still small, insignificant specks. Now, they might be viruses that kill us, but they're small. Small. Microscope. But now we flip that around. What's a telescope do? It takes those little blurry flickers of light that are up in the night sky. And it allows us to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of what they truly are. Scientists who first saw the rings around Saturn. Blown away. In our day and age, we have space telescopes that never cease to amaze. Like like when we see these pictures, like, like sometimes you see them and they just cause you to gasp and be like, that's real. That's not some CGI made up universe. That's something real and beautiful and majestic and I never knew it existed before apart from that telescope. It causes us to glory and delight in things that we never would. And apart from the gospel, mankind would not glory and delight in Jesus for who he truly is. So the gospel helps us see God rightly secondly on the other hand the gospel brings glory to God as men and women and boys and girls from all around the world are captivated by his beauty and his worth in the gospel by becoming true worshipers as they repent of their sin and they receive Jesus' free offer of forgiveness by faith So he's glorified, number one, in that he is seen most clearly in the gospel for who he is and he's glorified as people embrace him as their greatest treasure. They embrace that majesty and that worth and that love for what it is. And this is what I want you to see is that the mission of the church is never supposed to be a duty that's to be grudgingly Endured. Know as we've seen through the gospel ministry of Peter and Philip and Paul, the mission of the church is supposed to flow and be fueled by an inner joy and delight in Jesus Christ. It's supposed to flow from a vision of him as our greatest treasure. That's why Jesus gives us simple little parables like the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price and it doesn't go and the man who after finding it said it's just too much right no he sold everything that he might have it he sold every treasure that he owned that he might have the one great treasure And that's the treasure that we share. Second Peter chapter 9, Peter reminds us you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And, and we have a purpose. We, we have a purpose as God's people that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Notice, we're magnifying his glory and his worth we're proclaiming His excellencies. We're not merely saying, "You're just a horrible sinner." Now that is part of the gospel, but we're seeing how that is solved in the majesty and the glory of God. Verse 10: "Once you were not a people, but now you are a people, once you had not received mercy, but now... You've received mercy. You know, it's kind of a simple fact. We talk about the things that we delight in. If you're one of those people who loves gardening, you talk about gardening. With people who don't know anything about gardening, you want them to delight in gardening like you delight in gardening. If you're one of those people who loves hunting and fishing, you talk about hunting and fishing and you want other people to delight in the very same thing. If it's sports, what do you talk about? The things that we delight in just, just, just come out of our mouths because we love them so much. And it ought be the same Peter is saying here with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, as we close in light of this, I believe Luke ended his book like this so that he could tell the church of every age, it's your turn. It's your turn. It's open-ended. It's your turn. Embrace your privilege in God's saving plan. It's gone forth without hindrance. It's going forth without hindrance. And until Jesus returns, it will continue to do so let's close in a word of prayer